Well, if you are here again for the first time or if it's been a little while since you've been here, we've been walking through the book of 1 Timothy and our sermon series has been entitled Focusing on the Family of God. And I even had a subtitle for it, Believing, Behaving, and Becoming a True Local Church by God's Design for God's Glory as a reflection of God's kingdom. The reason I think all of us, every church needs to go through books of the Bible is it constantly reminds us of who we are and then it makes us say, are we doing what God's called us to do? And so we've been kind of walking through this week after week. We've considered uh, what it is that Paul told Timothy to make sure that he was putting in place so that the church that he was leading in Ephesus was a reflection of God. And it's been a rally cry for me and for us to make sure we at Cedar Street are also the church that God has called for us to be. Now, the last two weeks leading up to today, we talked about making congregational commitments, and the illustration that I used for two weeks was from that movie City Slickers, where Billy Crystal was trying to figure out the meaning of life, and and Jack Palace, who plays the the cowboy Curly, said, you know, the meaning of life is one thing. And he said, what is that one thing? And he said, you have to figure out what that one thing is and give your life to it. We know the one thing for us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and We've talked so much about what we do by making a commitment to the gospel. All right, It's a message not just that saves us, but changes us and transforms us. It changes our marriage. It changes our jobs. It changes everything that we do on a daily basis when we know and love Jesus and have Him and live for Him and become more like Him. Well, now as we kind of round third and get ready to head for home, we got this week and next week and we'll finish up the book. We're going to be in verses uh, 3 through 10 of chapter 6 today. The sermon of today is entitled, The Greater Gain of Godliness. The Greater Gain of Godliness. We're going to be talking about the aspect of what we gain when we make the gospel that one thing in our life. We're going to find out what it is that we gain when we gain godliness. You know, years ago, uh, Dr. Larry Guido, uh, that's a name that everybody in this room pretty much knows who is not from out of town. If you're from out of town, he's uh, the president of the Guido Evangelistic Association, and he's one of my adopted fathers and friends. And he said this to me years ago, of course, if you know Papa Larry, he not only has a, a theological background, but also a psychology background, and it brings a wonderful union. He's got such a balance to how it is that he teaches and preaches. And Papa Larry said to me one day, Bo, mark it down. Every human being in human history never does anything without a reward. And I sat for a minute. I said, well, I mean, there's some selfless people in the world. And he said, no, think about it. When you get to the motive of every human being, every single thing they do, even if it's not doing really what they want to do, they're still seeking a greater reward by denying themselves. You can't get away from it. God has wired you to seek a reward of some kind. All right, tell you what I mean. So for those of you who are great workers at your job, okay, you may be seeking the reward of a pay increase, or maybe you just want praise from your boss, or maybe you just want the joy of a finished product. You know, it's been a little while since I got on a lawnmower, but man, I used to love mowing the grass just to get done and step back and look at the perfect lines. You know, the joy of being able to make something like that look beautiful. Or maybe just the challenge of improving, of doing better this week than you did last week. I, you know, one of the things that we, we said earlier as we looked at 1 Timothy, I think it was in chapter 4, it said that as I continue to preach, the church ought to be able to see my progress in the Lord. All right? And it, it blesses my heart when Brother Duane will come up and say, I'm watching you and you're improving. I want to get better. But everything I do and everything that you do in some way, and not all of it's bad. I'm not here to condemn us. I'm here to be honest. We seek a reward. So maybe in your work, what about your marriage? 
right? The spouse that you choose. You want an attractive mate. You want someone who shares and encourages your values and a, is your companion and helper in life. All right, what about exercise, taking care of your physical body? Maybe you want to be strong and healthy, have lots of energy, or maybe you're single and you want to be more attractive to the opposite sex. Uh, and then maybe, you know, even getting down to that one phrase that will say, well, I did this because it's just the right thing to do. Well, I wasn't seeking any reward. It's just the right thing to do. Well, why do you want to do the right thing? You want to do the right thing, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because you want the joy of knowing that you do what is right. You can't get past it. Every human being is wired to seek reward for everything that we do. You're here today because in some way, there's a greater reward for being here than sleeping in. Many of you want a closeness with God and you came here truly to worship Him and, and have the joy of worshiping God. Some of you came here maybe to confess sin and want to re, rededicate your life and draw closer to Him. Some of you maybe have been dragged here by a family member or a friend and you want the reward of them leaving you alone. All right? Whatever the case may be, you're here today because you're seeking a reward. All right? So I'm here to tell you today, it's not wrong to say what's in it for me, but we must be able to see what God is truly offering us to see what's in it for us, and we also need to see what's in it for God. All right? As we seek to honor God and proclaim the gospel, that one thing in our lives, what we receive is godliness. And we need to know that what we gain in godliness is better than the world can offer us. All right, so what's the big idea as we get ready to go into 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10? In one sentence, here's our big idea. Through the gospel, we gain a godliness that is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Let me say it again. Through the gospel, we gain a godliness that is far greater than anything this world has to offer. In the next 30 minutes, what I hope to do is convince you, according to the Word of God, that pursuing godliness and letting the gospel transform your life will be the greatest gift that you could ever receive. It'd be greater than anything you could put a price tag on. It'd be greater than anything you could ever earn. And it's a joy and a privilege that God gives us, but it's one that those who don't know Jesus try to pervert. They did it then, they do it now. We're going to talk about that. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, again, chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 will be in verses 3 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. All right, we'll be on page 1180 in your pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 3 down to verse 10. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, we love You. We thank You. We praise You. And Father, we acknowledge that we want the Gospel to be that one thing in our lives. And Father, we know that we gain from that godliness, that we're declared righteous through the blood of Christ, and then we become more of that of which we've been declared through the power of the Spirit of God. But Father, we're tempted by so many things in this world that we could think are more valuable or more satisfying than godliness, and yet we'd be wrong, and Your Word is right. It's always right. So Father, I'm limited in my ability to be able to, to speak this truth, so I pray in all my failure that Your Spirit would have His way today. I pray the words would be anointed and the glory would be Yours, and that we would leave today understanding, really not not just understanding with our minds, but also with our hearts and in our actions, Father, that Your Gospel teaches us that the godliness that we have in Christ is a greater gain than the world can offer. It makes us filthy rich in Jesus. We thank You for Him. We pray in His name that You would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Every single thing in this book falls and rises with the Gospel. The Gospel's the good news of Jesus Christ, that primary message of life and death and resurrection and new life. And we've been talking since the very beginning in 1 Timothy that we need to be careful with the gospel, that message, because the world constantly wants to change the message. All right, in the beginning of chapter 1, we said that uh, Paul told Timothy to guard the good news and make sure that's primary. And every time the church gathers, they're talking about the gospel. He said they need to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's verse 15 of chapter 1. That we need to remember the recipients of the gospel, that Christ died for all people. It's His desire that all would come to a knowledge of saving faith. That we need to be living out the gospel in daily church life, that we need to have order and structure in our leadership, that we need to have elders and deacons and be practicing spiritual disciplines of prayer and the reading of the word, and we need to set our priorities in order around the gospel. And then the last two weeks, we've talked about making gospel-centered commitments to one another and to our widows and to our neighbors and in our work, wherever it is that we are. We need to make a commitment to being Christian and showing the gospel and verbally proclaiming the gospel. Today, I think we need to think about what, understanding what we gain when we gain Jesus. What is godliness all about and why is it more valuable than anything you can put a price tag on? That's what I want to talk about as we walk through these passages. And I got two, just two points here today. I was told yesterday it didn't matter how many points I have because my subpoints will still make it 40 minutes, but that's okay. But just two points today. And as we walk through the text, I want to show you what God says and then what the world says. And for all of us who've been told from the world what it is that we should be seeking, I want us to hear God loud and clear this morning about what it is that we should really be seeking. And it's okay to ask the question, what's in it for me? Because God answers what's in it for us. And it's more joy than we could ever put into words. So the first of the two points that I'd like to make as we walk through the text here in chapter 6, verses 3 through 10 is this. Number one, let's look at the greater gain of righteousness over riches. Righteousness over riches. Look back down at your, at your Bible with me in verses 3 through 5 and keep the Bible open. Okay, Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. All right, so let me start from the beginning and kind of walk us through this. In verse 3, it says, if anyone, okay, we're talking about false teachers that teach a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. We need to start right here and say this, Jesus is the author of truth. You want to know what's true? What's true is what Jesus says is true. You want to know what's false? It's what Jesus says is false. The world hates this. The world wants so desperately to teach that truth is relative, all right? But if I pulled Janie Sykes up here or any other math teacher and said, is truth relative, you'd say, you know what? If you believe that, you're going to have an awful tough time in math class because one plus one equals two. It's always been that way, and it's always going to be that way. We know inherently that truth is a fixed reality. Things are either true or they're not. What's right for you is not right for me is wrong for everyone. Okay, so when we think of truth, we need to start and end with Jesus. When Jesus proclaims something to be true, it is true indeed, because Jesus is the author of truth. He's the author of life. In fact, we talked this morning in our prospective member class and about the fact that his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it is the proof that it's the defining moment in human history. I remember this quote from the great theologian Graham Goldsworthy. Here's what he says. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the definitive revelation of mankind of God's mind and the defining fact of human history. The person and work of Jesus provide us with a single focal point for understanding reality. All of you know this because you have a calendar that says 2018. Well, what's 2018? All right. There's B.C. days before Christ and there's A.D., all right, which means the year of our Lord, the coming of Jesus. So even the calendars that we have mark before he came and after he came. He's the defining person and his defining moment of human history all come down to Jesus Christ and the cross. All of it. And so when Jesus proclaims that something is true, it is true indeed. And anybody who says something contrary to Jesus, they don't understand truth, and they're trying to tell you something different for their own personal gain. And that's what's happening in the passage here. All right, so how does Jesus tell us what is true? Well, he does it in word and in witness. He does it by what he says and does, but he also does it by who he is. All right, let's stop and remember why Jesus came. He came to die for sinners, but he also came to show us who God is. The Bible says that Jesus is the invisible God made visible. So if you ever laid in bed at night and said, I wonder what God's like. God's like Jesus. All right, the, the disciples missed this over and over and over again. I mean, how many times did the disciples say, tell us about the Father? And Jesus would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is God in human form. So he's truth in flesh. He's the word made flesh. But then also what he teaches is truth and then what he lives is truth so when he comes and says i'm here to proclaim to you good news we know it's good news and what he's telling us is true when he tells us that he's living for us and he's going to die for us and be risen from the dead for us and ascend to the father and send down his holy spirit for us and then one day come back again and make all things new for us that's good news 
We don't need to change that news. There's no news better than that. He's the author of good news because he's the author of truth. And again, when he says something, it's a fixed reality. All right, one of the things that Satan does, and it's, it's I think the primary tool he uses in 2018 is political correctness because it is not politically correct to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man gets to the Father but by Him. Who are you to say that a good Muslim or a good Jehovah's Witness or a good Mormon or a good fill-in-the-blank, who, who are you to say that they're not going to get to be with God forever? Well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. All right? Jesus never, ever said He was one of many ways to God. He said, no man will get to the Father but by me. And that does not make Christians arrogant. It just makes them understanding of the truth because he's God. Mohammed is not God. Charles Rutherford, you know, and Judge Rutherford, the, uh, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness faith, he's not God. Buddha is not God. Confucius is not God. Jesus is God. So he's the author of truth. And we must hang on his every word. And we must guard against those who have something different to say than Jesus does. All right? It doesn't mean that we can't love people who disagree with us and pray for them and be gentle to them. Okay? We don't take a Bible and bang them over the head like it's a theological revolver and we're pistol whipping them. All right? Grace, if, if grace does not come with truth, then the truth is incomplete. All right? So if you have friends and family and, and neighbors that don't believe in Jesus or believe that Jesus is maybe just a good moral teacher and he's one of many ways to God, give them the same grace that God has given you for them to understand that when God gave his son, there's not another lifeboat coming. Okay? Give them space and time, and, but don't deviate from the truth. Because that's what's happening here in verses 4 through 5. It says that these teachers, they, they basically deviate from the truth. They do not teach godliness. All right? They're out for self-glory instead of God's glory. It says in verse 4 that they're puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. All right? And they have unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. These teachers, you know, why is it people teach something contrary to what God teaches? Here's why I believe. Because people cannot stand the fact that truth does not change. They want to be the author of something new and revolutionary. I was reading a book yesterday that we, that we got uh, as being part of the conference. It was said, seven lies that pastors tell themselves. And one of the lies is that as a pastor, you're leading a movement. I am not leading a new movement. All I'm doing is I'm just a, a person, a servant, that is helping other servants build the kingdom of God. The movement is God's. It's not a new movement. He's been doing it for thousands of years, okay? So if I stand up here and tell you that we're going we're gonna to have a new movement, we're going to do something that's never been done, then you ought to be weary of that because that would be to glorify me and glorify us and not glorify God. Well, since the beginning of time, people have tried to say, you know, this is what God said, but if you do this, you'll have something that you never had before. Go back to the Garden of Eden. And think about Adam and Eve. God said, I have a kingdom here, this beautiful garden, and there's no death, and there's no pain, and there's no disease, and there's no separation. All I want you to do is love me and obey me. And Satan slithers into the garden as a, as a serpent and basically says, God's holding something good back from you. He knows if you're going to eat from that tree, you'll be just like him. He didn't say you'll surely die, did he? Go ahead and get you some. Because if you do, you'll have something you never had before. Well, since Satan 
in every generation of believers on through the nation of Israel, now into the church, there's been teachers that rise up in every generation and they teach something different than the gospel for their glory instead of the glory of God. And we have to be careful of that because it trickles its way in in every single generation. And it's a little bit different for every generation, but what they're seeking is self-glory. And as we see later on in the text, what they're seeking is financial gain. Because if a teacher has the truth that will lead you to a greater happiness than you could ever have, if you just pay $29.99, guess what? They're going to fill their pockets pretty fast because people are not happy. And they'll pay whatever it takes to have happiness. Whereas Jesus says, as we'll see in a moment, godliness with contentment is your gain. It's what you can't put a price tag on. So we've got to be weary of false teachers that trickle themselves into the church and in society in every single generation. And what do these ungodly teachers produce? They produce dissension and slander and evil and suspicions and friction, depravity of mind, depravity of truth, seeking not the glory of God, but the glory of themselves. I know I I say this a lot, and the reason I say it is because I can tell on Facebook many of you still believe this. All right? The false teaching of today is the prosperity gospel, and it needs to be put to death. All right? The prosperity gospel of Christian television will not make anybody praise Jesus. It will make people praise prosperity. Anybody will take Jesus if he'll make me healthy and make me wealthy, give me a new car, give me a promotion at work. You know, all that I want in life is just around the corner. If I just hang in there, if I just have enough faith, if I name it and I claim it, God will make it happen. The reason I'm not happy is I just didn't have enough faith that God wants me to have everything. The people that teach that are filling their pockets and getting richer by the moment. That's their gain. And because of that, they're doing everything that Paul's telling Timothy the false teachers in the first century are doing. All right? What they're doing is they're causing all kinds of issues. They're causing dissension and slander and evil suspicions and friction because they teach you that you have a right to be happy. It's God's job to make you happy. And anybody that gets in your way of being happy is just an obstacle or an object that you need to get out of the way. That teaching may build a church but it will not save a soul. It is from the pit of hell. And we need to guard against that. Now, we're also teaching a happiness series on Sunday nights. We're going to come back to that next week after revival. God does have a great desire for you to have happiness. But He wants you to have happiness in Him, not what He can give you. All right? We're going to be talking about that. God does want us to be joyful. He does want us to be happy. Going around as gloomy, depressed Christians all the time shows that we don't truly know God because when you have Him, you have everything. And that's what He wants us to be, a happy church, a joyful church that is, that is content with the things that He's given us. But at the same time, if we show that our happiness is in the car that we're driving or that our truck has to be four-wheel drive or that our house has to be on a certain road in this community or fill in the blank, then we're saying that that really is what's going to make us happy more than Jesus himself. There's an equation that I was going to save till the end. I'll I'll repeat it at the end. But just remember this simple math equation, okay? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. I'm not saying your life is perfect. I'm not saying it's free of pain. Jesus himself experienced pain that we could not possibly understand. But in Jesus, we have everything we need. And in that, we understand the gain of godliness. All right, so when we're called righteous, we're in a right relationship with God. The good news is 
You can't put a price tag on that. It's worth more than riches. All right? It's worth more than riches. And in, in uh, chapter 6 here, as we get to the end of verse 5, it says, In constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Those false teachers believe that teaching a false gospel will gain them notoriety and money. And now we're shifting to point two, and we're seeing what Jesus is really saying that we gain when we gain godliness. All right, so if point one was the greater gain of righteousness over riches, number two, let's look at the greater gain of contentment over cravings. Contentment over cravings. Listen to verses six through ten. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, here's the big verse. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So let's start up at verse 6 as we finish through and walk through this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This is, this is the joy of the gospel. Through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he did everything that was necessary for you to have eternal life, your, your response is to receive the joy of contentment that Jesus did for you that you could not do for yourselves. That when he said on the cross, it is finished, that's what he meant. There's nothing more for you to do but receive that message in repentance and faith. And have true contentment that God loves you more than I can put into words. And he's already taken care of everything that needs to be taken care of for you to have eternal life. Now you are to rest in that truth. And out of the rest of that truth, to live the rest of your life in thanksgiving for what he's done. And it goes on in verse 7 to, to basically hammer home that materialism that the false teachers are teaching. It says, for we brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of this world. All right, when, when we're truly content, it means we trust in the sovereignty of God. Either what we have or what's going on, we trust even if it's not the best in the world, even if we don't have the nicest car, even if we're going through pain and separation of the death of loved ones, we know that it's not, it does not surprise God. He is still fully in control. He's still on the throne. And even in the midst of pain, we can have peace and contentment. But yet these false teachers are saying, no, you don't have contentment because you don't yet have this. When you buy this or you have this, then you will have contentment. And here's what Paul's telling Timothy. That's foolishness because you, can, you didn't bring it into the world and you can't take it out of the world with you. You know, I, I remember um, years ago, I, I taught this in a Sunday school class, and I said there's no tow hitches on the back of hearses for a reason because you can't tow it away with you when you leave. And the next week, my brother brought a picture of a hearse with a tow hitch on the back. And uh, it was as a joke, but still, the reason that somebody would do that is because some way, we believe this up here, but we don't believe it here. The way that we uh, just store up our human wealth, we honestly think we can take it with us when we go. We really believe that. We believe it, we believe it here. We don't maybe not believe it here, but we believe it here. Because our lives reflect that. And, and, and basically, the gospel teaches that what we have is rich in Jesus. Not in what Jesus can give us, but in Jesus himself. So it, if, if that's true contentment, what's the world seeking contentment in? We seek contentment in having a perfect, healthy body, a stable job, a compatible spouse, long-term wealth, or prominent community status. We think if we have that dot, 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 
then we'll be content. But what's the problem with that? Everything in this world ends and changes. So if your contentment is based on something that ends and changes, you're going to build up some great anxiety worrying about it possibly changing. All right, if your contentment in life is the perfect body, you're going to be on the scale four times a day. You're going to worry about every single morsel of food that you eat. If your contentment in life is a stable job, you're going to worry every single time the boss calls you into his office for something. If your contentment is a compatible spouse, if you argue, you're going to be worried that, man, this is not the perfect life that I thought it was going to be. If, you're, if your contentment is long-term wealth, you're going to stare at the Dow Jones every single day and wonder if the market's up or the market's down because that's where your joy is. All right? If, you, if your joy is in prominent community status, you're going to worry an awful lot of what people say about you. And you're going to try to control that all the time. Whereas if your contentment is in Jesus Christ, you can rest in the fact that you are loved by God, that you've been redeemed by God, that you've been given eternal life by God, and that, yes, you can have moments of pain and moments of joy and share all of those with God, but that Jesus has already done for you what needed to be done. It's already over. It is finished. The victory has been won. And you can rest in that and live out the rest of your life, not seeking in a dog-eat-dog world to get yours. Jesus has already gotten it for you, what is needed, and we need to be content with that. Verse 8 says, but if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. And then it gets into verse 9, and this is where some toes are going to get stepped on a little bit, okay? All of us wrestle with this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You may say, well, I don't desire to be rich, so I'm not part of verse 9, but listen to verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I want to make this clear distinction, and then I want to talk about even in this distinction how people sometimes get it wrong. Money is not evil. That's not what this passage is saying. Don't miss this. It says the love of money is the root of evil. But there are a lot of people that love what I just said because it gives them an excuse to keep loving money. Don't assume that you don't love money. They're the, poor, the poorest people in this community could still be people that love money because that's what they think about. All right, Loving money does not mean you have money. It means that you desire it. It says in the passage here that you crave it, that you, that you plunge into ruin and destruction over it, that you think about it. All right, it produces two things, greed or worry. All right, for some people, the love of money produces greed. You don't want to let go of a penny. All right, you don't want to let go of a penny because you know that if you hold on to every single penny, there's more that you could acquire. But for some, it's just worry. For some, it's the sin of God providing a thousand times, and then you're struggling to believe that He's going to provide 1,001. And so you start withholding because you're worried. Both of those are rooted in a lack of trust and in a love for money. And He's saying the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It causes cravings, and it causes a wandering from the faith, and we're pierced with many pangs. And it's the greatest barrier we have to true contentment is materialism and the love of money. And guess what? There's one anecdote to that. Giving. I heard this uh, quote this weekend in the conference, and I couldn't write it down fast enough. Here's what the preacher said at the conference. God calls us to give, not to empty our pockets of money, but to empty our hearts of idols. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't. 
He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God is not saying, man, if I just don't get this percentage from this person, and if they're not going to invest in this kingdom, I can't make this happen. God can do anything at any time. He's not worried. He calls us to give because it's a privilege and because it gets the idol of the love of money out of our hearts. I know this because I've wrestled with this in my life, and I've seen great victory of this in my life. But guess what? It's not something that happens one time and then good, that, that idol's out of my heart for good. No, because the world is as tempting as it is, we fight that battle daily. If you don't believe me, go to the shopping mall for an hour. You'll see all kinds of things you didn't know you really needed. Trust me. QVC has stayed in business a long time for people who stay up late and buy things they did not know they thought they really needed. We struggle with that because our heart craves God created you to have a craving heart. He just wanted to be the one to fulfill it. So how do you answer this? How do I know if I love money? If Jesus came to your door and said, give me everything, what would you have the hardest time of letting go of? That's where your heart's at. If Jesus came and said, give me everything, what would be the last thing that he'd have to pry away from your fingers? Would it be a truck? A computer? An iPhone? The family silver in China? What would it be? It might be different for all of us. But Jesus is saying godliness with contentment is great gain because when you truly are godly, which means you live a life of godliness and a life that honors Jesus and Jesus is the center of your life, that contentment is that you would say to Jesus, come on in. It's all yours anyway. Take what you want. Because Jesus doesn't necessarily want that. He wants us to want him more than we want that. That's contentment. And the only anecdote to that is giving. That's the only anecdote. I've seen it happen in my life. I've shared my testimony many times of in my early 20s, sports memorabilia was the idol of my heart. And the only way God removed it was I had a two-day yard sale and I cleared it out lock, stock, and barrel. It's one of the greatest things I've ever done because it freed my heart up, but I still have to guard my heart. Ashley will tell you, I still have an Amazon wish list and it's pretty long. All right? Yeah, I have more than one Amazon wish list. I have, yeah. I have it broken into subcategories. And there are days that I feel the Lord saying, you know, buy one of those. I want you to enjoy it. The reason I gave you this is to enjoy it. I love books, and I, sometimes I read a book, and I feel like God's saying, read this and enjoy the truth. But then there are times where I worry about having the whole set of books. I gotta have all, I gotta have the whole set. It's a 15 book set and it's gotta be on. I can't have 14 of the 15 books. I gotta complete the set. It, the the leather bound set, not the hard copy set. It's gotta be on my, my second shelf. It's gotta be beautiful. It's gotta be the first thing people see when they come in. And then I see my heart's filled with an idol again. So you see what I'm saying? It's not that you lay it down one time and you've overcome that. You have to constantly go back and lay that idol at the altar again if you're gonna have the contentment that God's talking about in the gospel. All right, it's not that money is evil. God, some of you have material things that don't really take over your heart, and God is glorified that you enjoy them. But he knows if he were to come knocking on your door and say, I want that. I brought, I brought my vehicle. I want to put your boat on my vehicle and drive away. You okay with that? You'd say, sure. Let me back it up for you. That's what God wants. And that will lead to the contentment that all of you desire. The contentment that you can't put a price tag on. The contentment that false teachers would tell you you can get by sowing that $1,000 seed. Amen. 
Just send it on in and I'll send you back a prayer cloth and I'll march around this tree seven times and you'll have everything you want. I'm telling you, the reason why they say the wackiest things but they fill their pockets is people will believe anybody but Jesus when it comes to being happy. So all I'm saying is believe Jesus. God does want you to be happy in Him. And you will be when you celebrate that contentment is the greater gain of godliness. All right, it, It's the contentment over the cravings that God has given us. Again, let me just say that quote one more time before we get to our conclusion. God calls us to give not to empty our pockets of money, but to empty our hearts of idols. If someone's teaching a gospel contrary to Jesus, mark it down. They're doing it because either they want notoriety or they want your money. And Jesus is saying there is no better news than the one I've already given you. Be happy in me and you have everything you need. So let me sum this up. I know I've been kind of hitting at this over and over, but let me just close out by saying this. In one sentence, the greatest gain of godliness is having Christ himself. Because when we have nothing else, we still have everything. Remember that math equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Just give me Jesus. Just give me. I'm not trying to be cute up here. I'm being practical. Just give me Jesus. What is it that we could not still have some joy in our hearts if we had Jesus? I'm not saying that we pretend that everything's okay when we're living in pain. Jesus himself wept. We can experience pain and highs and lows and all of those things. But what I am saying is that we need to be content in where we're at in life. I'm grateful that the Lord has helped me to see what a treasure it is to live in this community, to pastor this church, to be married to that woman, to have the daughter that I have. I promise you this, I don't look over my shoulder saying, man, I wonder what life at that church would be like, or I wonder what living in that community would be like. Because I believe that I have what God intended for me to have. And if that's the case, I can't get any better than that. You can't improve on God's will for your life. You can try. You can think you know what you need better than what God thinks you need. But you won't find contentment. The gospel says in Christ we have everything we need. He's fully in control. Rest in Him. Maybe your situation is not what you want it to be right now. But honor Him in it because you still have Jesus. And maybe He'll change your situation, but maybe He won't. Maybe he's led you to that challenging marriage or maybe he's led you to that challenging job or maybe he's led you to that to draw closer to him to realize that true contentment comes in him and not what he can give you. All right, the the prosperity gospel teachers will tell you if you have enough faith, God will change everything. What Jesus will tell you is if you have enough faith, you already have everything. That's contentment with great gain. So as, as, and, and the quote that I, or the Bible verse that I had in there, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. How could Paul possibly say this? As we close out, I want you to meditate on this passage. Here's what Paul is saying. For me to live and share the gospel is awesome. All right? But for me to die and be with Jesus is actually something I get that's even better. If I live for Jesus, great. If I die and get to be with him, even better. Either way, I gain because I have Jesus. If he did not have that, there is no way that Paul could have gone all over the world preaching the gospel, being beaten and shipwrecked and jailed and tortured, all for the name of Jesus Christ. He did it for a reward. He did ask what's in it for me because he knew the answer was Jesus. He knew the answer was that he would stand before God at his day of judgment and say, and hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. God said it's okay to ask what's in it for me. All right, but you better know the answer. The answer is Jesus, and what's in it for him is glory. 
So if you don't know the Christ, if you're here today, and maybe you know the name of Jesus, maybe you've been going through the motions of, of church life, but you don't have that contentment, you might not know Jesus. Jesus came to live the perfect life that you could not live, to die the sacrificial death to take on the penalty that you deserved, to rise from the dead, making a way from death to life, ascending to the Father, sending down the Holy Spirit to open your eyes so that you could see that truth and to call you to repent and believe in it that you would be saved. Do you know that message? Have you repented and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have not, do not leave today without confessing with your tongue that Christ is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And if you are a Christian, again, I said this before, it's not something you lay down once and you got it conquered. The world can be tempting. can be tempting to make you think you're not happy because you don't have the right fill in the blank. If you have Jesus, you have what you need. So maybe time, today's the time to pray and ask God, what idol do I have in my heart? What, what am I putting in my heart before you? What do you want me to have and what do you want me to give away? Ask God that in prayer and the Holy Spirit will convict your heart of things that you could give away, things that you could refocus so that your true contentment would be in God and not what God can give you. Because godliness with contentment, as the Bible says, is great gain. Let's pray. Father, if I could just confess this in front of our whole church family, the world is so tempting in so many ways. It is so easy to get off track. It's the reason the hymn is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We wander. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and the world tells us that we'll find happiness if we just lose a few more pounds or save a few more dollars or get another promotion or find a new spouse or a new church or a new job or a new fill-in-the-blank, Father. And we know that contentment in what you have already given us is where true joy is because you've already given us everything in Jesus. Father, let this not be lip service here this morning. My sermon is just words from my mouth if it's not anointed by your Spirit. So I just pray that in all my weakness as a man that you would take those words and bury it deep in our heart through your Spirit, that we would think about it this week when we're on Amazon.com or we're at the job or we're at the dinner table with our families. Father, that we could be content in Christ Rest in what you've done and what you have given us in the Lord. Father, let it change us that we would never have a love for anything more than we have a love for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.